Um, so we have been uh, talking over the last few weeks about um, David and sort of the, the ruin that has become of his kingdom. I want to just remind you before I get too far into this, that if you do have a question or anything like that, feel free to uh, put that in the chat window. Um, I have it up and I can see. So um, feel free to add those questions or whatever along the way in the chat window and I'll address them as they come up. Um, but over the last few weeks, we've been dealing with David who has made a, a, a grievous sin in um, taking Bathsheba as his wife and then uh, killing her husband um, because he found out that Bathsheba was pregnant. And so he sought to hide his sin and all of these sorts of things. And, and so uh, David made some, some bad miscalculations and, and, and God through the prophet Nathan told David that because you have done this, uh, the sword will not depart from your house. And we have seen since that day, um, a constant fulfillment of that very uh, prophecy. We're going to see more of it come to fulfillment tonight. We saw um, just last, uh, a couple times ago, where Absalom had brought all the brothers together, Absalom being the second oldest son, um, had, uh, well, well, first Amnon, the oldest son, had had raped his sister Tamar, and Absalom, uh, the brother of both of them, uh, was was very mad about it, and he kept it to himself for two years. And then Absalom last week took all the brothers together for a big sheep shearing party, basically, and uh, and and killed Amnon in anger. And David, we saw, did really nothing nothing about uh, the sin of either of them. He certainly didn't uh, kill Amnon like he had every right to, and that seemed probably to drive a wedge, I would imagine, between him and. Uh, and Absalom, and Absalom vowed to just get revenge on his own, and so Absalom uh, struck Amnon and killed him at this at this party, and then Absalom took off running. David seemed that he didn't want to do anything to Absalom either, so there was no justice given to Absalom. Where we left off last week, and, and let me just go through a couple of review uh, things r- real quick. Once David hears that Amnon is dead, he falls into this really bad anguish, essentially. And Absalom flees to Baal Hatzor, where he seeks the aid of his his grandfather and lives under his care for a little while. Um, Remember, then after that, Joab really wanted to get Absalom back into the family and sort of uh, back into Jerusalem. And we're not entirely sure why, though there is some speculation about why he might have wanted to do that. And I think probably some good speculation about it. But nevertheless, he brings a, a woman that seems to be some sort of prophetess or something like that um, to David to basically present him a parable about um, her own sons. And David makes the right decision when it comes to her own sons, thinking it to be a real situation. He, he makes the right decision with her sons. And, um, and then she kind of turns the table on him and says, you know, well, you've basically done opposite of your advice when it comes to your own sons and to Israel itself. You've left us without an heir apparent. And so David takes that advice, understands that it's coming from Joab and tells Joab to bring Absalom back. 
Um, now, Joab, we know also is not loyal to Absalom. And so it becomes a kind of a weird deal of like, why, why would Joab really want to bring Absalom back? And probably the answer is that he was concerned about the succession of the, the next king. You know, our timeline that I've presented over the last uh, few times here has, has put this, uh, this event somewhere in the 970s, probably just toward the tail end of, his, of David's, um, David's uh, king, kingdom or David's life. But there are other people that put this in the last like year of David's life. And so, or the last really, really close to the very tail end of David's life. And so uh, it's possible that Joab was really, really concerned that, um, that there was not going to be a, a great heir to come along. And there's also a really good chance that, that, that he was rejecting Solomon altogether. When Solomon goes to take the throne and Adonijah fights him over it, Adonijah being the third son, fights him over the, the throne, Joab's going to side with Adonijah. And so there, there seems to be some evidence that Joab was not keen on Solomon taking the throne. Perhaps he was too young or, or a number of other things might have been the case. But whatever the reason, it seems that Joab was not keen on, on Solomon for sure and was probably unsure of how, once Amnon is dead, how the kingdom was going to survive if it didn't have a king. And so he really thought David needed to get out of his own way and bring Absalom back. That is actually going to lead to uh, some, some further not good things in the kingdom that we're going to see. So we transition out of that. Absalom is now back in the kingdom. But remember, Absalom and David aren't speaking to one another. So, so this plays out almost like a, like a family reunion, uh, or at least some of my family reunions, where you, know, you get people coming together in the same room, but some don't talk to each other. And, and that's the case with David and Absalom. Absalom certainly isn't walking into the throne room because you don't do that, for one. And perhaps he's still mad at David. We don't know. David doesn't invite Absalom in, and that is going to be an issue. So we end with the, the scriptures telling us in 2 Samuel that he came in, he lived there, but they didn't talk to each other. And Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. That's what it says in verse 24. And then we get to the first passage of uh of, that we're going to look at tonight, 2 Samuel 14, 25. And it's very strange because Absalom is in, he's not coming into the presence of David. And then in verse 25, it says, this is be the first passage in your verse packet. Now in all of Israel, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. For the so- from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut his hair, the hair of his head, for at the end of every year, he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were, there were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So he's named his daughter after his sister, um, which is, is probably fitting for this story. So there's this, just this weird three verses right there in the middle of this whole ordeal where we stop to talk about Absalom's hair and his appearance. And I, I, I know the tendency when you read the Bible, because I have the same tendency 
And I think you're probably a lot like me when we read the Bible. We take these little paragraphs and we kind of skip over them or we read through them really quickly because we're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Get to the part where the story actually progresses. And this is a, a moment. These three verses are a moment where you need to stop and go, now, I wonder why that's there. Because one thing that you have to know about the scriptures, them being inspired by the Holy Spirit, inerrant and infallible, we believe that every word is there with intention. Now, we may not always know why that explanation or why that paragraph is there. And there may not be a good reason that we can find for it. But I can promise you there is a good reason. And I think there's a pretty good reason why this one's here too. We stop for a second. We consider Absalom's looks, his hair. uh, And let me go ahead and put that up there. Um, It's the most famous thing about Absalom, his hair. And it seems like this strange detail in the middle of the narrative. And it makes us ask, now, why is that there? But if you've been paying attention to the story so far, you might notice a few things. Namely, that the two kings already presented in First and Second Samuel, that is Saul and David, Saul is described as, is introduced as choice and handsome. And David is described in a similar fashion. Both of them, before they take the throne, are described by their looks. Now, why would that be? Well, remember all the way back in um, when Samuel, the, the, the person Samuel, is going to select David. And he doesn't know he's going to select David. He's going to go pick one of Jesse's sons that God is going to tell him about. Samuel looks at the tallest, oldest son and says, you know, surely he's the one. And God says, no, he's not the one. You look at the outside. Man looks at the outside appearance and God looks at the heart. And this actually becomes a theme running through First and Second Samuel is that appearance matters to people, whereas to God, it really doesn't. And what we're going to see is that people gravitate towards good-looking people. That's true even today. But people gravitate towards good-looking people. Um, And so Saul is able to whip people up into a frenzy and get them really going and think he's going to be a great king because he's tall. He's head and shoulders above the rest. Um, You know, and so, and David is also described as, as ruddy in appearance, very choice and handsome and things like this. Um, People tend to gravitate towards that. Well, here is Absalom coming into the town. And before we get into Absalom's trickery, we might ask, how is it that Absalom is able to persuade so many people that we're going to see in just a minute to follow after him. Well, the narrator stops and says, you need to understand something about Absalom. He was a good looking fella and had a lot of things going for him. And so people tend to follow people like that. Um, get some feedback on the microphone. If y'all can mute, maybe. I don't know if there's a, 
I see here. Uh, yeah, there you go. Okay. Um, so that, that's the way David is described. And, and so we understand then when Absalom is described that way, we kind of get a clue as to what might be coming in the story. Um, so Absalom's physical appearance is described for us just before he makes his bid for the throne. So you, you can tell, you can see where the narrator is going with the story by how he's setting it up. You already know that when physical appearance is named about a person, uh, there tends to be some uh, a, a, a kingdom coming. And so it gives us a clue as to what Absalom's real play in being in Jerusalem is. You should not trust Absalom. Uh, he is he's going to um, make a play for this throne. And now I'm not condoning any sin, but I will say Absalom's plan is brilliant. It's not moral. It's not upright. It's not good. But man, is it savvy. And you're going to see that in just a minute. He is a, a sharp dude. And uh, and he as he makes his play for the throne. So. Um, there's also some parallels that are being drawn here. It seems like in verse 27, uh, we get this cross comparison where Absalom's house is also being built up. And you'll remember, uh, just like David's house was being built up, that the Lord blessed David and built up David's house. And this was evidence of the fact that he was King, so this is going to be really difficult for you to wrap your mind around, and we're going to deal with it at the very end of tonight. But, um, but for now, just think about this for a second. David was selected by God to be king, and God built up David's house as evidence uh, to the reader and to David and to probably all of Jerusalem or all of all of the Jews that God was with him. Here, Absalom's house is being built up. This also describes the fact that God is with him, but it's not for blessing of the nation of Israel. It's for judgment on the house of David. Remember, God promised that judgment was going to fall on the house of David. And we're going to see who's behind that judgment in just a minute toward the end of tonight. But suffice it to say, God building up Absalom's house is at least a signpost that's going to point us in that direction, remind us of the judgment that he has already promised uh, to the house of, of David. Um, okay, so um, <clears throat> both houses are being, are being built up. And then we get this, the, also this kind of cross comparison maybe between Saul and Absalom. Both are distinguished or called out by their heads, Saul, because his head was towering above the rest, he had a towering head, and Absalom, because the, his head of hair, uh, he had so much hair that it, was, it grew so fast and was so beautiful and luscious, probably a lot like mine, I'm sure. And, uh, you know, it's the end of the, it's the, end of the, uh, the year for me, so I've shaved it all off and and uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't very many shekels, I'll, I'll assure you that. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're having trouble even producing a shekel now. So um, anyway, um, so, you know, Absalom's, Absalom's hair grows incredibly fast. It's wonderful. It's lush. 
And uh, he's also described by, by his head. It's, it's, he's beautiful in appearance. All right. Um, so two years after his return, Absalom is frustrated that he had not been reintroduced to the court. And so he does something that um, is very strange in the passaging, and we probably don't understand all of the nuances of it, but let, let's go ahead and read it before I read the rest of this point. Let's go ahead and read it in uh, 28 uh, to 33. It says, so Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, see Joab's field is next to mine and he has barley there. Go set it on fire. (laughs) Oh, sorry. (laughs) So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered, answered Joab, uh, sorry, I shot that funny. Behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to, to the king to ask why have I not, why, why have I come from Gesher? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, let, me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to, to the king and bowed himself to his, on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Um, now, there's a couple of things that are, that are really interesting about this. But first, Absalom is, um, is not reintroduced to the court. And what, what does that exactly mean, that he's, that he's not been brought back into the king's presence? And probably it's, a, it's kind of a, um, you might think of a pardon. Look, there's a rift between the king and I, and I don't have his blessing. Um, there may even be some thought that Absalom is going to take over for David when he dies. I don't know. But uh, Absalom wants to, be, wants to have the king's blessing. Most likely, the reason he wants the king's blessing is because that will look good in the eyes of the people on the front page of the Jerusalem, you know, daily prophet is, uh, is, is the, the words King welcome son in back into court, you know, and, uh, all the people are, are seeing that Absalom is not the black sheep of the family. In fact, he's welcomed back in. And so Absalom is thinking to himself, well, you know, I should have just been in Gesher this whole time. If he's not going to bring me back into, if he's not going to give me his blessing, then what's the point of even bringing, bringing me back to Jerusalem? And so he, he knows that the best way to get into the king's court is through, is through Joab, which, is, which also might, we might tuck that away in just a, for just a minute um, to, to talk about later. But he, he knows that Joab's the best way to get his way into the court. And so he calls for Joab and Joab doesn't answer a couple of times. And so he does what anybody would do. And he sets his field on fire. <laughs> that's again, I'm not condoning sin, but, but that's funny. <laughs> you know, uh, he, he's a, he's kind of a ruthless individual and, uh, and pretty shrewd. And he knows the best way to get Joab's attention. And so he, 
has his servants do it. And they set his field on fire and Joab comes to him and Joab gets him into the king's court. But notice at the very end of this passage, at the end of this paragraph, there's something really interesting about the response here uh, from David to Joab that's going to come up in just a minute. Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom, and this is it right here. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. That's what you do before kings, is it not? It is. The king kissed Absalom. What is that? Okay, the king doesn't kiss people normally. Uh, That is a sign of fellowship. Absalom is David's son, and he's treating him like a son for the first time in many years. That's really important because of the passage that's about to come where Absalom starts doing his dirty, dirty work. But he, he, Absalom is back into the king's good graces. Okay. Absalom then is going to prepare his coup. And the first thing that he's got to do when you prepare a coup is you got to get an entourage. All right. When you, uh, when you are back in the king's good graces, when you're the son of the king, you're the prince, you need to start acting like a king, baby. And so what do people do? Even nowadays, what people do when they get a ton of money, they have an entourage around them because it makes them look like a king. It makes you know that they have a lot of money and power and influence. And so what does, uh, what does Absalom do? He also gets an entourage. So let's, let's look at that in, um, in uh, 15, one to six. And after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when uh, any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were a judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage, listen to this, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus, Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. All right, there's a bunch of stuff going on in this passage, which is uh, incredibly fascinating. But so Absalom gets his chariot and his horses and his 50 men, his entourage, bodyguards, the whole nine yards uh, before him. And so it was pretty common for, you know, ancient Near Eastern uh, kings, like I said, it's it's kind of common nowadays, actually. But um, to you know, kind of move about with these warriors, their bodyguards, their advisors, they are uh, people that show how prominent and how important because these people are all on my payroll, and I'm still rich. Uh, that that kind of idea uh, it shows power and influence. And Absalom's first step is to surround himself with the sort of the idea of royalty, because if you look like a king, people begin to treat you like a king. 
we have a saying in, in our day and age, dress for the job that you want, not the job that you have. Uh, the idea is the same premise. You dress like you have the, the big job and eventually you kind of work your way into it. Well, that's, that's sort of Absalom. Absalom is doing that before it was cool, I guess. Um, but so then what does Absalom do next? Well, he manipulated the symbols of the way people would be greeted in the capital city as they're coming for judgment in their case. And instead of them bowing down before the king and the king standing there and saying, okay, you may rise now, he embraced them as brothers, or perhaps you might think of it as a son, that he became like a father to the people of Israel. So when they would come into the the place, he would, just like David did to him, his very own son, he treated them a lot like brothers, maybe you might even say slash sons there. Um, but he embraced them, he kissed them, and and didn't separate himself from the people. And so you can kind of see him garnering support like this. He presents himself as a man of the people, and he's treating everyone with respect. And so this is garnering a little bit of attention. People, it turns out, like being treated kindly by people that are uh, famous. What's the first thing that you hear when you hear somebody met a famous person? Oh, you met him? What is he like? And they say, oh, he's a jerk. You swear that person off forever. Oh, he's so nice. It's a person takes on a different, uh, has a different image in your eyes. So Absalom short circuits David goes to the city gate early in the morning to catch all these people coming into the city gate early in the morning for judgment. And judgment would be just to hear a court case or settle a dispute between them and and other people, tribal territories, things like that. And he basically presents himself as, hey, I'm I'm one of you, but I'm a prince and I I have the authority of someone who rules. So, by rising early in the morning, he's able to intercept these people that are coming into the capital city for their, um, their claim to be heard. And Absalom claimed to support their claims and lamented that no one in the palace was willing to listen to them. We don't know whether this is true or not. And there are, uh, there are I guess, arguments to be made on either side. On one side says Absalom is lying about this and David is just being short-circuited. David would gladly hear their claim. And evidence that David would hear their claim is the woman of Tekoa, just the chapter prior, was able to get entrance into David's palace and have him hear her case. So some say, no, Absalom is lying about this and he sort of working the system to his advantage. However, I would say probably David doesn't, has made a habit of not talking to the people and getting you know, busy or whatever, or not hearing their cases. And this potentially is getting toward the latter end of his days. And perhaps he's just getting tired and doesn't want to, um, or something else. Remember, the woman of Tekoa is brought into the palace by Joab. Who is the one that brought Absalom into the palace? Joab. 
so it seems as though the last couple of chapters have kind of made the argument to us. It's if you want to get your case heard, it's Joab that you need to get in front of. And so potentially this, this is becoming known to the people that David isn't listening to our cases anymore. He isn't doing his job, so to speak. And so Absalom short circuits that and comes in and says, seizes the opportunity here to garner some support in his, uh, in his court as one who is sympathetic, sympathetic with the people and who would do for the people what is, what is right and who would judge their cases. And, um, and so, uh, you know, that, that's, that seems to probably be the best argument, that Absalom is, is actually pointing out a problem and is seizing on that problem and really taking advantage of it. So he gets there, he short circuits the whole uh, e- event. Um, <laughs> I just now saw Blake McKinney's comment in the, in the list there. Um, Touche, Blake. Always plan on Blake for a good good pun. So Saul was head and shoulders and Absalom was suave. Um, That's good. Um, So the third thing that Absalom did, which is just, I mean, it's brilliant. I mean, just, you have to kind of give him his due. It's, it's incredibly cunning, sinful and devious, but uh, he's certainly not an idiot. Um, He exploited divisions within Israel that David had worked so hard to overcome. Do you remember back when David took the throne? This was years prior, at least we'll say 30 years prior to this ever happening. David takes the throne and um, and when he does, there is a division between Saul's company and his heir uh, and David. And um, Saul's heir tried to take the throne for a while. All of Israel is with Saul's heir. And David is left with pretty much Judah and Benjamin. And it's not for another like five years before uh, he dies and Ishbosheth dies and David gets the throne from Ishbosheth and unites all the tribes. And for a while, it's thought that David prioritized Judah over everyone else. And so, uh, so basically they, they were not really willing to, uh, you know, come to David because they thought they wouldn't be treated fairly. Well, look at what Absalom does here in, uh, in verse two, at the very end of verse two. And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, meaning as opposed to Judah. So when a person came forward and presented themselves from the tribe of Judah, that is outside of Judah, or from the tribe of Israel, that is outside of Judah, Absalom would take their case. So the, I think the assumption we're supposed to make in this passage is that when they were of the tribe of Judah, he would send them on through. But when they were from the tribe of uh, such and such a tribe in Israel and the rest of Israel, he would stop them at the gate and would hear their case. So he's playing into the preconceived notions of the rest of of Israel that David is particular toward the the Judahites rather than the rest of Israel. And so he kind of plays on that 
idea already and, and exploits those divisions and accentuates those divisions. And if, if you really think about it, uh, uh, it's, a, it's an incredible strategy because you'd have to think, well, how is one able to walk in and just split a kingdom wide open, David's kingdom nonetheless? And that's how, because he's really shrewd and perceptive at what's, at what's going on. And as verse six would tell you, he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So whether Judah was there or not, I'm not sure, but at least the rest of the tribes of Israel are, are there with, uh, with Absalom and are, are willing to follow after him. And so, oh, I, I forgot to put that up there. If the man was from the tribe of Judah, uh, he would send him on through. But if they were from another tribe, he would not get a hearing with David. So Judah and a hearing are the next two blanks. Um, so Absalom does this for a little while and um, goes to the gate, you know, does all of this. And, and notice it does seem kind of strange that he's doing all this and nobody comes back to David and says, hey, do you know what your son is doing, right? Uh, that could be a number of different things. It could be like the author tells us in verse six, he stole the hearts of the men of Israel that they liked it. They had no desire to go tell David anything. Uh, the second part could be something that's implied in the text that David was losing contact with his people and was kind of in the ivory tower, so to speak, and didn't come down to, to see what was going on. But for one reason or another, Absalom is able to hang around the gates and do all of this and, uh, and do this sort of favor for the people. And David's not really aware of it. And so at the end of, of, at the end of some time, uh, he gains a lot of attention. And then we read the, the rest of the text for tonight. Uh, and at the end of four years, starting in verse seven of chapter 15, at the end of four years, could also be 40 years. You might have that in your uh, translation. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant has vowed a vow while I lived in Gesher in Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men of Jerusalem who were invited guests and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, Ahithophel sorry, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Okay, so Absalom goes to fulfill a religious vow uh, in Hebron, and, uh, which apparently he did make and he is going to fulfill. Uh, it's not a ruse. He actually did do that, but he's using it as a, for multiple purposes. Absalom entered uh, into what, what became as the second phase of his plot where he's going to garner support from men in the surrounding cities. So what happens when a traveler comes into Jerusalem and gets his case heard by the prince? Most people would probably assume the heir apparent. 
and uh, and and they have their case resolved. And Absalom treats them like a friend or a son or a brother. He kisses them. Well, they go back and they tell their friends and family members, oh, I had my case heard by Absalom and he did what was right. So remember the people that are coming into the gates of Jerusalem are not from Jerusalem. They are from various other places and they've come there to have a hearing. They got it from Absalom. They go back home. They tell their friends and family members. Uh, they become promoters of Absalom's business, so to speak. And so now Absalom has probably garnered a little bit of a name for himself. And so he makes another shrewd move in going out to the people this time and garnering support from them in the surrounding cities. But look at how he does it. When he first goes, he sends spies out through the land to stir up support for him. And what are they supposed to do when they stir up support for him? Well, they're basically agitating the people and they're organizing demonstrations, which would appear to be a spontaneous overflow of support for Absalom. Now, just think about how this would work, okay? Absalom's got a few supporters, probably some of these 50 men that that he paid to be his entourage. They go out in the, in the cities while Absalom is at Hebron. And when the horn blows for worship, the people, uh, remember Absalom is there to worship. Um, when the people hear the horn, when they hear the horn, Absalom's own people, their plants in amongst the people shout, Absalom is king in Hebron. It makes everybody else around go, oh, I'm the only one that's, that didn't know we should be supporting Absalom now. And so what does it do to the population when you feel like you are in the minority? You just tell me that. Uh, We know even from our own day, if you feel like you are in the minority and everybody else is saying the same thing, well, you kind of want to be a part of the in crowd. And so what is this naturally going to do as Absalom is whipping the people up into a frenzy in favor of his kingship is it's going to make the rest of the people go, yeah, me too. I'm, I'm for this as well and stir them up into a friend, a frenzy. So he has put it, he has put uh, plants in amongst the people to get their support for him. And I mean, again, you know, it just shows he, He's, he's a very cunning person, and he's, he's, very, uh, he's thought through this clearly. He's had some years, apparently, to think through this. So, um, so the other thing that's really interesting is that he takes some of 200 men from the city of Jerusalem. Now, presumably these men, the text doesn't say, but I think it's probably a safe assumption that these are important men. These are leading citizens of the capital city that he takes with him, people that were at the gate that would normally have some influence at the gates where all the you know elders sat and things like that. Um, so uh, David, w- uh, or so he takes these leading citizens along with him. And what, do, what does that do when Absalom is going to march back into the city with a whole crowd of support there for his kingdom? 
Well, it's going to leave David in the midst of a crisis and not have the 200 leading men of the city there to be able to handle it. Um, He has not only taken the men out of the city, they didn't even know what they were going for. The prince just said, hey, come with me. Unlikely that a prince is going to invite, you know, a peasant. And so they're they're probably important men. The, The prince invites you. You say yes. He go, they go with him. They don't even know what they're going for. The text tells us they went in good conscience because they didn't really know what they were going for. And when they get there, they're persuaded by the crowds. They're persuaded by Absalom. They're persuaded by the others that they need to join in this, this fight against David. And so when David sees Absalom and his people marching back into the city, it's going to be too late. Nor does he have the 200 men of the city of probably a prominent importance that would be there to help him handle it. Um, so Absalom also gains the support of um, Ahitophel, the Gilanite. It's interesting that he's mentioned, but um, he, he's mentioned in verse 12 as one of David's counselors. And again, you might ask, why this person above all of the others? Uh, well, it's because his counsel was tantamount to the counsel of the word of God. We see in first uh, Samuel, uh, sorry, uh, it's second Samuel, I think 1623. Now in those days, the counsel that uh, Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So he was esteemed by both David and Absalom and his counsel was esteemed from both David and Absalom. So he's a smart man. That's, that's one part of it that tells you uh, why he's noted in the text. There's also another reason that you had to really be paying attention to catch. And not, probably none of you did. I certainly didn't either. But Ahithophel, Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. Um, so, uh, we see in Second Samuel eleven three, uh, it says, "And David sent and inquired about the woman Bathsheba, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Iliam is Bathsheba's dad.' Then Second Samuel twenty three thirty four uh, is in the future. Uh, Eliphet, uh, uh, the son of uh, uh, Ahas, Ahasbai of Makkah, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. So Eliam is the dad of Bathsheba. Ahithophel, the Gilanite, is the dad of Iliam. So he's Bathsheba's grandfather. Yes, I will not say that five times fast, uh, <laughs> Andrew. Um, Man, smart aleck people. Um, no, <laughs> so perhaps, I don't know for sure, but perhaps uh, is, uh, as wise as Ahithophel is, his um, memory is also quite long. And perhaps he might remember what David did to both Bathsheba and to her husband. I think even if we don't know Ahithophel's motivation behind it, what we can say maybe 
is that the author of Second Samuel is winking at us and again to tell us this is the judgment of God for that event in David's life where he sought another man's wife and then he killed the man um, for her. And because here is her grandfather who is now turning his back on David and giving his counsel to Absalom. Um, so this is all a really, you know, strange story. And it's, a, it's interesting for sure. And there's a lot of intricacies to it. And a lot of things where we go, wow, I, I mean, Absalom is really cunning and he's very smart. He's shrewd and he's evil, but he's shrewd. And, um, and so there's a lot of intricacies to the story. But then if we really want to get, uh, if we really want to think about this for just a minute, uh, it can get even more complex and more of a difficult pill to swallow. Uh, mainly because Absalom's coup, as we look at it, we see two things clearly present in the text. One is Yahweh's divine plan reaching fulfillment in Absalom's sinful rebellion. That's the other thing. Absalom is sinful and guilty of a sinful rebellion against Yahweh's anointed king. And at the same time, we have to also recognize this is God's plan. Well, how do we know that? Well, because God told us, and the author of 2 Samuel told us as much through the mouth of the prophet um, Nathan. In 2 Samuel 12, it's in your verse packet toward the end, 2 Samuel 12, uh, verses 10 to 11. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. So this is a really difficult thing, I think, for many people to wrestle with. I don't think it necessarily has to be because the Bible seems to present, present it pretty clearly but it does seem to be a very difficult thing for people to wrestle with. Yeah. The Lord tells him, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Who is that? That's Absalom. Absalom is committing a sinful rebellion and touching the Lord's anointed, which he is guilty of sin for doing. And at the same time, Yahweh told through the prophet, Nathan told David, I will raise up evil against your house. Um, how do we understand those two things working together? We know James tells us God is not tempted by evil and he himself tempts no one. So he doesn't sin. If we were to say God sins, that would be, that's an abomination. That's not true at all. So how do we understand those two relating to one another? Well, remember as we deal with our own sin. Um, what, what often we'll say is, and, and it's very true and it's scriptural, is that it's a heart issue, that it comes down to the heart behind it. And that's very difficult for us to wrestle with. I want black and white. When I sit down in front of someone, I want to know, 
if I purchase a Lexus, is that sin? I want to know if I purchase a, a three-story house, is that sin? You know, I want to know if there some very specifics, just black and white, tell me yes or no, is that sin? And when the person says it's a heart issue, uh, we, we come back, well, if the motivation behind me wanting that is sin, then it is sin. Because as Jesus says, what goes into the body, it doesn't defile a man. It's what comes out, out of the heart comes wickedness and all those, that defiles the man. So then we have to ask, what is in the heart of God? Is evil ever in the heart of God? No, never. In fact, the only being in the entire, whatever, order that, uh, that we can say whose heart is 100% pure, it's Yahweh. So then if God does something, anything, it's not for evil, it's for good. His intentions are 100% pure. Even when he judges the house of David, his intentions are 100% pure and righteous. There's not one drop of evil in them. Even when he has to draw that straight line with the crooked stick of Absalom. So he uses Absalom's sin for which Absalom is completely guilty because what is in Absalom's heart? Complete, total, and unabashed evil. So Absalom is guilty and simultaneous, the Lord, Yahweh, is not, even though the same action was accomplished by both. The Lord rose up Absalom and appointed him to accomplish this task of judgment over David's house. And yet, Absalom is also guilty. But if you remember, Peter actually makes this same argument in Acts 2.23 about the killing of Jesus. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So the men are lawless and you crucified him and you delivered him up and you're guilty of that. And Peter's gonna tell them to repent in that sermon. Repent for the sin that you've committed. Yet at the same time, Jesus was delivered up according to the plan and foreknowledge of God. That God set out for this to happen. There was no option for Jesus to come to this earth and not die on the cross at the hands of sinful men. That was in the cards. It was in the plan. And God was going to use the hands of sinful men to do it. At the same time, God is not guilty of their sin. And the men are not innocent of the blood on their hands. Questions, comments, concerns? Obviously, that's a very hard thing to end on. And perhaps you want to think about it for a while. Still good? Everybody? Nobody? No questions? Well, same parallel with Judas, of course. Yeah. 
I mean, John, the book of John, the gospel of John will tell you uh, in no uncertain terms that Jesus absolutely had Judas there on purpose. And he knew it from the beginning. There was no surprise. And in spite of the fact that he knew he was stealing money out of the purse, even gave him control of the purse. These are tensions that are sometimes in the, in the biblical text that are difficult for us to work out in our mind. But what I found is that it's not difficult when you just let the Bible speak. Just let the Bible say what it says. It says God rose up Absalom, then he rose up Absalom. It also says he's not guilty of evil, then at the same time he's not guilty of evil. It also says Absalom's guilty of the evil, so Absalom's guilty of the evil too. <laughs> All those things are true. It's difficult when we start to break into our philosophy, our philosophical categories and go, well, how can those two things coexist at the same time? The reason we know those two things can coexist at the same time is because the Bible tells us those two things coexist at the same time. Just let the Bible stand. Let it say what it says. Other questions? All right, guys. Well, uh, David, you get your wish. I end on time. And you can go see a comment out the window, I, I guess. Remind us again, David Maxwell, where we can see this comment tonight. Well, just remember, look over where the sun sets. Uh, look over where the sun rises. Look over where the sun so, sets and where it rises. Sun's right. rising in the northeast here in the middle of summer and setting in the northwest in the uh, middle of summer. And the sunset views will improve over the rest of the month. It'll get a little higher in the sky. Sunrise views will be harder because it's going to off lower and lower and it's only just above the horizon this week so dr david maxwell has told us all stare into the face of the sun right is that what i heard that's what i heard <laughs> just to just to clarify when i go outside tonight which way am i looking at the sunset sunset North or sunrise yeah huh Th this evening you you look where the sun sets Okay. In that, in that direction. In the morning, if you rise early, Shannon, you can look in the direction where the sun will rise before it rises. Okay. That always, works. always stare into the face of the sun. I think that's <laughs> yeah. the moral of the story. Stare at the sun. The pastor misleads, not I. <laughs> what? what did he say? He said the pastor misleads, not I. Oh. If we end up with a bunch of blind members of our congregation, then, yeah. and if I do it, I guess we'll be the blind leading the blind. All right. And um, I was fixing to say the same thing. You beat me <laughs> to it. All right. Well, let's pray and let's get out of here so you can go stare at the sun. All right. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we're so grateful for your word and how timeless and true it is. Uh, we're grateful for how pertinent it is to us and uh, how much it actually says about you and your character. Uh, we know that your character is flawless, that your nature is good and, and is for our good. And we believe that wholeheartedly. If not, I don't think we could make it, um, not especially in times like these. And, uh, but we trust that you are good 
and that your word endures and your love for us endures forever. And we know that that's true, particularly in, in Christ who has um, died for us and given us hope of eternal life and assurance of life to come, assurance of forgiveness of sin. Uh, that is a perfect picture of the love that you have for us is in the cross. And so we remind ourselves of that to, to understand just how much you love us and how true your love is for us. And um, we pray that that always be at the forefront of our minds. And at the same time, we remember that as we study scripture, uh, we pray that you would just continue to testify to its truth to us over time. And that as we do, you would help us to see uh, that we don't have to settle any tensions and that we can let your word stand for what it says and, um, and, and let the questions be as they may, but uh, we can let your word stand and we can be comfortable there and um, trusting you throughout it all. Uh, we pray for all of these things in Jesus name. Amen. Amen.